Hi, welcome to Innovative Leaders Thriving, Thriving Organizations. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. With me on the show today is Rebecca Heiss, one of the speakers who is brilliant in sharing her expertise around the idea of blind spots and bias. Delighted to be here. Let's start with what is implicit bias and why do people care? Implicit biases that are things that on the surface we really don't have immediate control over. So they're biases that we may not even be aware of or we choose to hide we choose to hide for political or social reasons. Those those sorts of biases are the biases that we talk about on a regular basis. Like I'm oh I'm not this. Well you're aware of that. So that's not really an implicit bias. The implicit bias are these attitudes that affect our understanding, our actions, even our decision making from an unconscious or a subconscious state. So most of us walk around completely oblivious to the fact that we even have them. So they're not under intentional or conscious control. And that's what makes these biases so dangerous because they're so easy to be unaware of them. And too often we ignore them. We're completely blind to them. So when I when I talk about blind spots, I spend a lot of time addressing implicit biases and trying to bring these subconscious uh, biases to our awareness so that we can take action on them. So just recapping the idea that implicit means I am unconscious of, and yet I'm still responding from. The more I'm unconscious, the less control I am in my work. Yeah, and, and control for, for a lot of us is so important, right? We really want control. We want to have control. And I think the first step in in gaining control over these biases is just being aware enough to say that we have them and recognizing that some of the times the things that we think we know just aren't so, or sometimes we just don't want to go there, or other times it's it's something that we that we think we know um, or that we don't know that we don't know. And those are really three major categories of blind spots that I see really frequently in my work. What are some specific examples? I, a couple come to my mind, but as the expert, what do you see and what's the impact on an organization? Frequently, I see a lot. Uh, I think that the easy example is around race or gender biases, uh, especially in hiring practices. So one of the more famous examples of, of bias in workplace hire is in the orchestras in, in the U.S. in the 1970s. So in the 1970s, there's about 5% of the top orchestra had women in them. And that's a that's a really low number because women are pretty pretty good at tuba and, and cello and bass and these large instruments that people assumed or had this implicit bias that we just didn't have the lung capacity as women to play as well as men. And so they simply weren't hired on the spot. In the 1980s, we started to become a little bit more cognizant of the fact that we had these blind spots and we built a program of of blind auditions. So job seekers would audition behind a curtain. And what happened? Well, uh, nothing immediately. <laughs> Interestingly, what happened was that jurors were still aware of this click, 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 click of a woman's heels when she showed up to audition behind the screen. And still, subconsciously, they processed that as somebody who wouldn't play as well. So it wasn't until all auditions were conducted shoeless behind a screen that you started to see this surge of women being hired in orchestras. So, I mean, most of us now don't have jobs in which we audition for, right? But but we're constantly hiring from a pool of applicants with a ton of information that could could elicit these implicit biases present on their resumes. So I think it's really important to have a committee to help make this unbiased decision that goes through sort of levels where the first level you're removing names, for example. 
interesting research in, in the sciences shows that names like Lakeisha or Jamal, which have a bias in the race category, are about 50% less likely to get a callback for an identical resume than if those names were, for example, Greg or Emily. So fascinating research in the areas of race, in the areas of uh, gender, same thing. So, so Greg is 50% or 70% more likely, depending upon the job, to get a callback on an identical resume as Emily is. So just by removing names, we can start to um, identify some of these things that trigger our implicit biases. That's a start. There's entire companies that are built around helping employers remove these names to to begin to not get stuck in that in that cycle of implicit bias and hire the right person for the job, not what they think might be the right person for the job based upon their uh, their gender or their age or their their race. Sorry, I, I kind of got twisted in that. I'm not even sure. I got really excited about giving examples. I'm not even sure if I answered the the question you initially asked. Yes, you did. And so specifically gender and race. And so I assume some of our listeners are saying, yeah, 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 fine. That's for somebody else who is biased, not me, because I treat everyone the same. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I I get a lot of that. I get a lot of, yeah, I I understand, you know, but I'm I'm not a racist or I'm not biased by gender. And and I challenge my listeners because I I, I don't think I am either. But that's the whole point of having implicit biases being implicit. They're subconscious, right? So just because you don't consciously behave in a, in a manner that would, would deem you biased, it doesn't mean that you're not demonstrating preference or disfavor um, at a subconscious level. So I, I tell people our, our brains are really pretty tricky, right? They process about 400 billion, that's billion with a B, bits of information every single second. And the trouble is that we're only consciously aware about, of about 2,000 bits per second, which means that 99.99999, I don't know, get the calculation right, but it's pretty significant amount of the information that we think we know, we simply aren't conscious of. I'm a big fan of tests like the Harvard Implicit Associations Test or the IAT, um, these are really important to help people understand and uh, sort of put a concrete example around their implicit association. So the IAT, it measures the minuscule differences in time that it takes for your brain to connect related concepts. So you'll be faster at reporting subconscious connections that are tighter than those connections that are not as solidified in your brain. So for example, if I was to say uh, beach and sand, those would be easier to associate and I'd be faster at associating those than I would beach and screwdriver because when was the last time you went to a beach and saw a bunch of screwdrivers, right? That's a a little bit of a dissociation. So where this can be really interesting is when you start to pair words that are a little less innocuous, like male and leader or female and leader or female and family or male and family. And you start to see sort of subtle, really small differences in the timing in which your subconscious processes these. Another favorite example that I, I think I've used with you, Maureen, before, is I ask people to, uh, to think about the, the stereotype for a blonde, right? And we're all consciously aware of that. And I don't think anybody is consciously stereotyped against blondes. But we know the stereotype, right? Can you help me with that? Can you 
give me some idea of what what a blonde stereotype might be. Well, certainly the blondes have more fun. Oh, I love it. Good. That's that. That love that. That is the first time I've ever gotten a positive response. Right. But yeah, blondes have more fun. Um, blondes tend to be ditzy or spacey. I get a lot of uh, examples. I get Goldie Hawn or Pamela Anderson or Barbie. But in the thousands and thousands and thousands of times that I've asked this question, I've never gotten a response that was like Ken doll. I've never gotten a male associated with blondes. Even though we're aware of the blonde stereotype, we're not necessarily aware of all of those associations um, that we're making alongside that. So all of those negative associations that we have with the blonde stereotype, other than they have more fun, right, we're also potentially associating with women as well. And that's where it gets really dangerous. I don't think consciously most of us would say that we're racist or we're you know, biased in, in most ways, but our subconscious connections may might reveal otherwise. I have an interesting example of this. I was in the hair salon in a pretty positive neighborhood in Columbus, Ohio, and someone comes in with a gun. I was behind the counter paying, so I assume he thought I was the checkout lady. And my reaction to him, he looked physiologically a whole lot like my brother. I thought it was a joke because I don't associate gunmen with my brother. Right. My brother could be a lot of things, but he doesn't hold up ladies' hair salons. Oh, that's fascinating. What a great example. Now, it wasn't necessarily color, but it was body type. That I expected, you know, pants falling off, skinny, looks like a jog addict, right? Kind of a pudgy guy. Uh-huh. So it, it, it pointed to me. Well, unfortunately, because I thought he looked like my brother, I stayed calm. I didn't do anything to get myself shot. But <laughs> well, I had to hear that. My goodness. That may save my life. But, but after that, I realized that I have, and I think I have no prejudice. Mm-hmm. But at that moment, it was clear that I had a series of biases based on my family. Just men that look like my brother shouldn't be criminals. And I'm sure Freud would be happy to hear that, too. <laughs> There's a lot of really interesting associations that we make with the people that we grew up with. But my goodness, that's a, that's a really interesting story. To your point of, of many of us have gone through all of the training about removing bias from our conscious. And even someone like me who thinks I've done a ton of sensitivity training, right, clearly still has biases. And I th- think your research would say we all do, right? Absolutely. At least, I mean, 99.999% of us. Um, and I think, I think they're unavoidable. And as you said, you know, some are positive, some are negative. It's not necessarily a negative thing. We get caught up on that a lot. But um, for your example, it may have saved your life. And yet, I and yeah, I'm glad it did. But <laughs> <I mean>, the, the, <laughs> the point is, we're going to break is that we need to own that we have unconscious biases because one of the first ways to deal with them is to to own that that there's stuff that happens below our consciousness and be willing to examine it rather than continue to say I'm not biased. Absolutely. Absolutely. Getting over that ego part of us that that wants to be that perfect, I'm not biased. Yeah, I I think that's a great point. So, Rebecca, can you explain to our listeners 
what are the business reasons? So yeah, we have them, but we got lots of lots of stuff. Um, why would I want to invest my energy in addressing implicit bias when there are so many things that uh, that pull my attention? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. And uh, we we sort of already touched on the topic of hiring practice, but I think the main obvious answer is, is you're undermining your colleagues without your awareness of of implicit bias. And it goes so far beyond race and gender. Your your brain is programmed for various thinking styles and um, seeing gender and age in class and all of these various biases that actually will create little micro level internal competitions within your team. And it hurts your ability as a team to to collectively work uh, and compete on the bigger market. So uh, one of my favorite studies actually that came out recently showed that uh, low level discomfort between team members and, and in, by encouraging diversity and being aware of our implicit biases, that uncomfort that you feel when you're talking with somebody who doesn't quite agree with you or you don't quite see eye to eye. I actually promotes better problem solving. And when tensions are discussed openly, uh, what ends up happening is those uh, those groups that are not homogenous end up deciding that they they feel a lot less confident about the decisions that they come to, but they're much more accurate. Whereas the homogenous groups tend to be more confident or overly confident in their decisions, even when their conclusions are wrong. So in in addressing our blind spots and being aware and comfortable with with implicit bias and and moving forward openly with it, we're avoiding that confirmation bias um, where we're all in this together. We feel good. That's I think feeling good in business is overrated. I really do. I think I I I want to promote discomfort. I talk a lot about discomfort challenges. That did I have I ever spoken to you about discomfort challenges and. No, you haven't, but I would love to hear it because when we talk about the leader 2050, there are seven competencies we believe leaders need to have. And one is the ability to understand multiple perspectives and synthesize them. And that's really uncomfortable because I have to now listen to respectfully someone whose point of view is somewhat too significantly different than my own and find the value in that perspective rather than, as you're saying, surround myself with people who look and sound and even more importantly, think the same way I do. Yeah, it, it's so difficult. I mean, because, I, again, our brains are programmed to to feel comfortable with our in-groups, the people that, you know, nod along and say, oh, yeah, that's a great idea, Maureen, like, I, more of that. Um, so I, I often will challenge my my clients to Engage in a discomfort challenge, and it can be a, a number of different things. If one of their biases that that they think they have, and actually it doesn't even have to relate to their bias. I'm just going to give a couple random examples. Go to a different church. Go to a mosque. Go to a Catholic church. Go to uh, a place of worship. Go to a humanitarian. Whatever it is that go to a um, an atheist meeting. If you're religious, you know, go to something that's different to get a different perspective and just listen. Don't open your mouth. It's so hard for us, <laughs> but don't open your mouth. Just listen. Just take in the information. If that's a little too much to begin with, one of my favorite challenges that I that I ask people to do is go to a um, go to a coffee shop, and while you're waiting in line, just lay down. <laughs> lay so, down. Lay down. Lay down. I think I'm doing that. <laughs> Now, again, somebody will probably ask you, oh, my goodness, are you okay? Absolutely. I'm just taking a rest for about 10 seconds, lay down, 
and then get back up as if nothing's happened because nothing has happened, right? This, you're not causing a major disruption. There's no big challenge, but it's it's forcing you to feel in a space of discomfort and forcing your brain to sort of get used to that feeling of it's it's not tragic. Nobody died, right? Uh-huh. We're in this we're in this mismatched world where our brain is stuck on survival mode, but we don't have a lot of things that we have to survive. You know, we're we're in climate controlled rooms. We're not out hunting our dinner. So it's not like we have these major areas of discomfort uh, in most of the the world that we live in, at least. Creating these little, these minor challenges to get used to the idea that your brain should be challenged. That's That's how it grows, I think is a great exercise for any leader. You know, one of the other competencies we have it, uh, talks about highly authentic and reflective and also intellectually curious, intellectually versatile. Yeah. The idea that I am continually taking in information that would challenge my, my I wouldn't say preconceived notions, but I worked really hard to get to those preconceived notions. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I have earned those perspectives and yet I I personally read things that are uncomfortable. I took an improv class to get become a better speaker. And boy, was that. Awkward. Oh, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> that's the huge challenge. Absolutely. I joined a women's African drumming group. I'm terrible. Oh, that's wonderful. I, I just joined an ultimate Frisbee league. You should see me try. I feel so bad for my teammates. It's, but I bet it's a lot, but it's probably both fun, awkward, embarrassing, and ground. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I practice something, or I try as much as I can. I I, uh, I fail a lot at this, but I think that's a valuable lesson. It's something called uh, Shinoshin, and it's a, a Buddhist concept that is basically approaching life with curiosity um, through the eyes. I think it, it translates something like through the eyes of a child, but basically continuing to ask the questions to get a better explanation, being curious is so so eye-opening. And you really will discover so many of your biases just by asking questions. I used to do the example with with a class that I taught of making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. If you were to explain to me how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, you'd probably say, well, you stick the peanut butter on the bread or, you know, pretty basic instructions. And I would be as obnoxious as possible by taking a jar of peanut butter and setting it on top of you know, a piece of bread that was still wrapped up in the container. And what, what you realize is sometimes the, thing that's, the things that you're saying, that you're conveying, aren't actually as clear as you think. You already know that you want me to take that bread out of the prepackage. You want me to open the jar of peanut butter. You want me to scoop some out on a knife. And then you want me to spread it. But this, again, is a very simplified example because we all probably know how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. But what are the other things that we're assuming everybody in the room knows? You know, I like the the illustration. We do something with origami in one of my classes. And I was never a fan of origami and couldn't fold the bird to save my life. But it <laughs> illustrates something similar that th- there's so much we take for granted in our daily lives. And when we work with people who either see the world differently or have different sets of experience, that different perspective is really illustrated by their discomfort and what appears to be lack of competence. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. I think we, um, well, I could get into a whole other topic here, but we do this a lot with ESL learners in schools. 
there's a lot of assumption that, you know, Eng- when English is your second language, you're just not, you just don't get it. You don't understand the topic. No, I just don't understand the language. Holy. But that's a, that's an aside. I don't want to get too deep into that, but let's go back to something that seems important in the business case for leaders. And that is the, I have many of us, most of us probably have various biases. I like tall people. I like short people, whatever gender, blonde, whatever the thing is, right? And that causes us to eliminate people from our consideration or rank them differently. And yet that diversity, because of the experiences that we have growing up and working in a just a physiological body that looks different, I have a different set of experiences than I, I interviewed someone the other day who's, I'm short, so he seems very tall. So he looks like he's six six and African-American. Mm-hmm. Walking through the world in a six-foot-tall body, first of all, gives one a different experience than I have. <laughs> it does. <Right? has. laughs> no one ever runs away because they're intimidated physically from me. Interesting. If the two of us are in a meeting where, even if it has no, if it's just a business decision about risk, we're going to look at it through different eyes and point to different perspectives slightly, right? We all, we've all been to graduate school, so we're all going to look at, you know, the basic stuff. Sure. But it seems like, so, so add you into that mix, Eric and myself, having us on a team, we will see the world differently, slightly. And it's that nuance, I think, isn't it? That would, if I were biased, I would miss the opportunity. Yes, that's, it's brilliantly put. Yeah. I, and I'm, you know, my, um, my biases are as a biologist. So I often see the world of business from a biological perspective. And one of my favorite sayings is biodiversity breeds stability. And that's true in, in biology. If you want a field that's going to be stable for many years or a crop that's going to be stable for many years, you plant a diversity of plants. Um, and then when one plant fails, uh, you, you have others that, that don't. And in the, in the boardroom, the same concept is true. If you have a diversity of thinking styles, of races, of ages, of, you're all approaching the same problem, but you're approaching it with a slightly different perspective. So worrying where your blind spot might be is going to be slightly different from my blind spot, which is going to be slightly different from Eric's blind spot. And when one of us misses something, because we will, um, the other is more likely to, to pick up on that or to not have the same blind spot as us. And so it creates a much more stable environment. VW actually is one of my, my favorite companies to pick on for a giant blind spot. When you have a lot of very homogenous workers, it, it can get very dangerous that you're not seeing the one big blind spot that's glaringly in front of you. And so this this biodiversity, I guess, of, of boardroom members or of anybody working on a project together is essential to to avoid these blind spots and disastrous blind spots, I would add. Can you say more about the biology? And one of the things I believe, at least from my research, is that we respond physiologically to differences and often shut them out. Yes, Right. Yeah, it, it feels dangerous. You're spot on. Yeah. So so we evolved. And I, I will say this repeatedly, so forgive me, but our minds are are stuck in the Stone Age. 
You know, we have all of this modern technology that's happened really rapidly over evolutionary time where we have homes and grocery stores and all of these crazy things going on that are completely not adaptive for our, our brains, which are stuck going, oh my gosh, I need fats and sugars. Why do we need fats and sugars when we can go down the street and get McDonald's or Krispy Kremes or whatever it is? Well, our brains are still thinking we're living in a Stone Age time where fats and sugars are the only way that we're going to build up enough fat storage to survive a long, cold winter. So these brains of ours look at diversity, look at people that are different from us, and we have a fear response because in our ancestral environment, again, where our brains are stuck, anybody that looked different from you, acted different from you, thought different from you, probably didn't live in that same safe in-group of about 20 or so individuals. So you're asking this Stone Age brain to translate itself into a modern environment where there's 7 billion plus, all different races, all different ages, all different faces. And we do a pretty terrible job of identifying individuals as individuals when we're coping with 7 billion. Um, our brain kind of goes on tilt and we have a fear response. So we elicit huge levels of cortisol, a stress stressor, the hormone that creates uh, creates fear, essentially, um, a flight or fight response. If you're sitting in a board meeting, you may not recognize it, but your brain may be going, oh, my gosh, I'm going to get slaughtered, <laughs> which, again, completely subconscious, but uh, a very interesting perspective from a from a boardroom table. I've actually been in those boardrooms and I have thought <laughs> I was going to get slaughtered. <laughs> you know, I might as well be charged by a group of wild boars or something. <laughs> Because what goes on in, well, and I assume we've all been in that meeting, whatever the group is, where we've said like, oh my goodness, how did I end up here? And how did we go so far off what seems reasonable? And how do I help fix yeah. so that I can survive and be safe and create the constructive outcome we're here to create? Yeah, I mean, that's that's always your subconscious pulling you, saying it's trying to create a safe environment. Because it's so mismatched in the modern world, it, it does a, kind of a crappy job of it. But I'll tell you, the, the simplest way, if you're in that situation, and I think more leaders need to take full advantage of this and, and even suggest it, even though it's going to be really discomfort, you know, really a spot of, of discomfort to suggest it, if that height of, of stress and fear in that, board, in that boardroom, suggest everybody take a breath. Because it literally will remove your your amygdala, your fear-based response system, from acting reaction in a reactionary way and give the power back to your frontal lobe, which is where all of your conscious executive decisions are made. So the breath is incredible because it, it's the one thing that connects both our subconscious and our conscious minds. Thank goodness, you know, we don't have to think about breathing most of the time. But when we consciously do and we sit back and just say, what that does is it returns us to the present moment and gives us the time that our conscious mind needs to think rationally instead of being reactionary. Can you say a little bit more about bias and brain functioning and how just the simple fact of breathing helps us reset and become more effective? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll, I'm going to give all of the credit away here because I 
wish I could claim that this was my own research, but the research belongs to Sarah Lazarus um, out of Harvard. She did an incredible study looking at breath and what it does, how it shifts the brain um, in these situations. So she took a group of 20 non-meditators. And I'm going to use the word meditation a lot here. And I want to just point out that a lot of people get wrapped up in the word meditation. They they don't want to be a meditator. They don't want to be categorized in that particular group. All I'll say is when I say the word meditate, I'm just asking that people say that's that's just a returning to present. That's taking a breath. It doesn't have to be an, an alm session, um, anything major, just literally taking a breath. So she took 20 individuals that had never meditated before, had never taken that conscious breath, and she put them through an eight-week, 20-minute-a-day meditation program where they were just trying to be present and aware. And she scanned their brains before the program, and she scanned their brains after the program. And in eight weeks' time, she managed to completely change the structure of their brains, which to me is incredible. The major changes were that she shrunk the connections in the amygdala and that fear-based processing system um, and grew the frontal lobe so that her, or the sorry, the brains of the now meditators um, actually expanded in the areas of the brain where there's executive decisions, um, conscious functioning happening, which is incredible. You can do that just by breathing, right? So, so I always say that if you want to change your your brain, change your biases, the first step is awareness and breath. Take a breath. So how long, I, I may have spaced out, how long did they do this, this meditation practice? So it was a, an eight-week program, um, and they did this meditation for 20 minutes a day. I'm actually doing some research right now I with my, my company, Instinctive Cognition, where we're doing this same sort of thing in less than 10 minutes a day uh, for three weeks. And we're having some really incredible results so far. So stay posted on that. I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. But basically, we're, we're able to lower cortisol levels. Um, that's the stress hormone that I spoke about earlier. And when you get out of that cortisol flight or flight response, uh, you can begin to process information more consciously and make better decisions. Then define your specific experiments. Three weeks, 10 minutes a day. If I were to go off and start doing this today, yeah, what would I do? Do I sit and chant? Do I go <laughs> for a walk quietly? And if I am one of our listeners, I've never meditated. This could seem like some weird stuff. Do I have to go buy a special outfit? <laughs> I think those are all great questions that I... I'm laughing because I, I'm recognizing my own biases here, right? I'm explaining it like, oh, you just do some meditation. It's fine. Uh, no, there's nothing There's nothing fancy about it. You wake up. The program, literally, you spit into a tube. So we measure your your cort levels, your um, salivary cortisol levels. And then you begin the program. And the program is just an audio file that walks you through the very basics of meditation. It gives you cues to take a deep breath. Notice that when the breath is filling your lungs, notice when the breath is leaving. When your mind wanders, it's okay. That happens, right? Just bring it back to the present moment because our minds are so busy all the time that what ends up happening is all of this information is thrown at us and we don't process it well. We just throw it to our subconscious to process. And so the meditation time is just a short period of time where we're consciously aware just of what's happening in that moment. And we want to minimize what's happening in that moment just to our breath. Um, maybe the smells that you you have in your office. Maybe if you're on a walk, Maureen, like you said, 
maybe noticing the crunch of the leaves beneath your feet, but not, you know, running through the phone calls that you have to make, the, the dinner that's burning, you know, the, the kids that doesn't count, background, you know, all of that stuff for, for 10 minutes a day, we're trying to brain dump basically and say, nope, I need to clear my head of, of all of these thoughts and just be present in this exact moment. So it's a, it's a practice to help you identify when you're becoming stressed because once, once you have those 10 minutes a day um, down and you understand the feeling of what it feels like when you're in the present moment, then you can start to identify throughout the day moments when you do not feel like that, but you're making big decisions. So it gives you a moment of pause to say, I don't feel like I'm in a space where I'm using my brain to the best ability. Hopefully at that point, once you've identified that, once you're aware, you can take action to bring back your, your conscious state just by taking a breath and perhaps make a better decision forward. Now I want to tie this to blind spots and bias. And aside from my kind of silly questions, I, I, I have been a meditator for decades. Oh, that's great. <laughs> I can't imagine my life without having a mechanism in addition to alcohol um, <laughs> do you have it working out <laughs> that I that I have a way to turn my brain off or at least turn it down? Yes. It, I don't think mine has an off switch, but it has a down switch. Yes. And yeah, I think that's that's so important. So many people are, are scared, which is ironic. They're scared to try meditation or scared to try a, a breathing exercise because they're afraid they're going to fail. <laughs> that's exactly the reason why you need to do it. Keep failing. That's part of the practice. So one thing I want to share, because I've had grad students, I teach this in one of my MBA classes, and I've had students say, I can't do that. It's against my religion. Okay. And so I do want to say that the meditation could be a prayer. It is probably not reciting verbatim the same one we always recite, unless it's something like a rosary that, again, takes our mind to not running through my phone list. Right. Yeah. I, again, um, to me, it's it's a very non-denominational practice. Um, it, it is simply a state of awareness. So it's I'm not trying to promote any particular religion or against any particular religion. It can be a prayer. It can be a walk. It can be me sitting in the middle of a board meeting, taking a breath. You know, it, <laughs> not, it doesn't require fancy clothing or worshiping any, any particular <laughs> yeah, weird deities. So I'm, I'm forever going to picture you in some amazing room. <laughs> ah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, sitting with, with my collection of crazy gods and goddesses on a shelf in front of me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think uh, meditation gets a little bit twisted in, in what it is. But uh, it's, it's honestly, it's a way to rewire your brain, which I think humans have the unique opportunity, if not um, obligation to do so, moral obligation to do so, because if we're willing to put in the work to repeatedly force ourselves to become aware and take action to adapt a new way of thinking and continue to practice and practice and practice, we'll actually be able to bring those Stone Age brains more into the present environment and begin to recognize those blind spots and mismatches that it's created when we're stuck in that survival mode, that constant, my phone is ringing, I've got 16 emails, my boss is knocking on the door, and my kids are crying. Like, if we're stuck in that mode, we don't advance. But um, one of the things that I love the most about our brain is its plasticity. I mean, you can change it at any time, no matter what your age is. Uh, people say, oh, well, these, 
you know, he's stuck in his ways. He's an old, can't teach an old dog new tricks. No, that's complete garbage. Um, our brains are completely malleable at all times. And, and that's an incredible power and responsibility I think we have. Well, and there's research that says now well into our 80s, people's brains are changing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and it's, it falls upon us. I think that's the trick. It falls upon the individual to make that commitment because you can easily go through life and just sort of take the brain you have or you can actively engage it and change it. And that's a really cool opportunity to, it's a little bit meta, right? But thinking about, thinking about your brain um, has the, has the possibility to, to shift it. So we've talked about meditation as one mechanism, and I just want to make sure people are making the connection between, yeah, meditation is a good thing to do. You people, you, Rebecca and Maureen, and some other people think that um, if I, if I do this 10 minute a day meditation, that it will impact my cortisol level. So let's bring it back to it impacts my cortisol level. It's a way for my brain to go out of fight and flight mode and into re-engaging my prefrontal cortex, which is my executive function or the, the, the part that thinks exactly. in the more complex way. Exactly. So instead of being in that in-group where your brain has evolved to be fearful, you move from a space of fear into a space of, of thinking. So it starts to um, to overcome your biases. You you can move from a, a space of survival, which is your preset, to a place where you can better thrive and and recognize your biases and be okay in that uncomfortable space, or even seek discomfort, which we've we've spoken about already being a really powerful tool. I need to move from my preset to this capacity, I may never get comfortable with stuff that is awkward. Right. I would say for myself, my span of ability to deal with complexity and things that are would have in the past been terribly uncomfortable, I now have a much higher tolerance for. Is that yeah, for you? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, the brain is just like any other muscle in our body. Uh, a lot of people train their bodies, and it's not necessarily fun or, or comfortable. I hate running. I still do it because I know that it's good for my body, and I know that even when I'm creating these microscopic tears in my muscles when I'm when I'm training them, that's how they grow. That's how they get bigger. <laughs> and we have to be willing to put our brain in that same situation. Um, be willing to create those microscopic tears, those uncomfortable conversations, because we do grow. We do get get better and move forward. Uh, if you're if you're sitting with your same in group uh, all around your couch all day, I, I talk about that like a like you're sitting there, you're a couch potato. Your body turns to mush, your brain turns to mush, and it's not that you don't deserve days off or a comfortable day every now and then. We all need those. Trust me, I'm. I'm not a glutton for punishment. I'm not saying, you know, create discomfort all for everywhere you go. But um, it is how you really expand and, and grow. We focused heavily on awareness of our biases and the physiological response and how we manage that. So I would refer to meditation often as weightlifting the brain. It's my workout. So to your point, I wouldn't eat ice cream all day and not exercise. Right. And yet many of us cognitively eat ice cream on the weekends because we're so crazy busy during the week and don't take that 10 minutes a day or more. Mm -hmm. 
to look inside because sometimes what's in there is a little scary. And that's part of the point. That's exactly it. I mean, I think being scared of, of ourselves is a um, it's an epidemic. I mean, we're a little bit scared to look inside and that we can come up with every excuse we need to feed our egos and say, well, I, I'm not biased and I don't have a problem with this. And the more we tell that story, the less likely we are to to create environments where we really do dig in deep and change ourselves personally and give us and our teams opportunities to, to grow and, and be a lot more successful. Rebecca, how would people reach you? The best place is, is my email, Rebecca at Rebecca Heiss, that's H-E-I-S-S dot com. You can find me on my website at www.rebeccaheiss.com. You can check out my Twitter at Dr. Rebecca Heiss. Or you can check out my uh, my meditation program at instinctivecognition.com. And I'd be happy to, to help you all in any way that I possibly can. Please reach out. It'd be great to hear uh, your thoughts and ideas on this. Thank you, Rebecca. Rebecca.